Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Rod Beard, Pistons beat writer for the Detroit News, and I want to welcome you to episode three of the Rod and Real podcast, the long-awaited episode three of the podcast. And apologies for not getting this out a bit sooner. There were some technical difficulties. There was a little bit of everything and a couple of road trips mixed in, and that made it a little bit harder to get everything done. But again, just glad to get this out and glad to have everybody listening and supporting the way that you have for the first couple Got a nice show planned for you today, taking a look at the Pistons and where they are 13 games in now, and it's not good at all. If this were a report card, this would not be a passing grade whatsoever. also want to get into how to enjoy this team this season, and there's been so much venom going around, but if you are a diehard Pistons fan and you're disappointed by the start or you're disappointed by the long-term outlook, I want to give you some things to look at in terms of trying to enjoy this team and not be so disappointed and depressed. And do some Andre Drummond talk. He had a good start to the season as well and want to dive into some things. Had a quick conversation with him when we were on the road and some interesting points that he brought out about the way that he's perceived, the way that he's moving forward with his career, and a little bit about the contract future and what that's going to look like. Also want to get some road story talk and not so much stories this time, but just road trips and look at the top five cities that are like on the NBA beat. I want to talk a little music, my top five albums. Talk so much about hip hop and different things like that, but I want to get into something that's been popping around. People are doing the 10 albums that influence their lives. I want to do five that are significant to me and, and go into the why for each one of those two. And then wrap up with some DFS talk and how we're looking right now with the Pistons in the first let's say, 13 games of the season and, and what that looks like. What is that, 1-6, 1-7, somewhere in that, uh, in that range. And how you can adjust on a day-to-day basis and looking at what the production is going to be for some of these guys. But I want to start out with uh, the report card and, and where the Pistons are in those 13 games. A 4-9 start, they are 12th in the East and, ironically, only two games out of the 7th seed. So there's a big jumble in that bottom half of the Eastern Conference And so you're talking about teams like Cleveland that are in the same sort of bubble with them. Cleveland, Charlotte, Atlanta. In a sense, there's nobody that's running away with this thing. We expected Toronto, Boston, Philly, those teams to be at the top of the East. And and to a lesser degree, you can say Indiana as well, to be right there in that top five. And we're seeing exactly that. What the Pistons have not done is started out well, and that 4-9 and nine includes two wins over Indiana, which if it comes down to it, I guess you can look at the silver lining and say that they can get the tiebreaker if they get this last win in that four-game series, and that's coming up in a couple of weeks here, that they'll play Indiana for that fourth time and wrap up that season series. And that could matter, maybe not, but there's been so much in terms of injuries in this first part of the season If I told you at the beginning of the year that Blake Griffin would have only played in two games, Reggie Jackson only in two games, and Derrick Rose in eight of the first 13, what do you think the record would be? Jackson in the Griffin part is the most stunning in that. And some would say, the the cynics would say not stunning because this is an injury-plagued roster and you just knew at some point this was going to come up. I don't think people saw the Griffin one coming up because that was something in the summer where he had the knee scoped and it was just a minor surgery, but it didn't react well and he didn't get the start that he wanted to. We only played two games in the preseason and 
I think people were looking for more. And even those two games in the preseason, he didn't look like he was playing at any kind of full speed. So I don't think it was something that was aggravated by the preseason. It feels more like he just knew that he wasn't at 100% and there was going to be some load management anyway at some point in this season. So maybe it is better that it started at the beginning of the year than what we're seeing now where a lot of NBA stars are dropping like flies. We've seen Steph Curry go down. uh, Karis LaVert is out. D'Angelo Russell now that the Warriors have been absolutely decimated by injuries. And really, if you go on a team to team basis, a lot of teams are missing some of their stars to at the beginning of the year here. So if the Pistons could get Blake Griffin back and Derrick Rose and they can integrate all of that stuff together, maybe they can get on a, a good little streak here and roll some games off. And I talked to Blake Griffin the other day about how do you look at the big picture of the season versus saying, hey, they're four and nine now and things are starting to get a little hairy. And he said, no, you get on a four or five game win streak and you're right back at 500. And four or five game win streak, sure, that it's easy to say it's harder for this group to do from what we've seen in the eye test. And there was some something to look at in the first 13 games. Andre Drummond broke out a little bit. He had four 2020 games. But those didn't impact winning in the way that the Pistons maybe needed them to. They need some cohesiveness and they need a guy in that starting group who's going to carry the load, who's going to get a basket when you need him to. And Blake Griffin is that guy when he gets right. But having only played two games, partly because of schedule, he played the Monday game against the Timberwolves. They lost that game. They came back on Tuesday and played at Miami, he was out that game, and they were there, and then they were not there in in terms of being in that game. Came back for the Charlotte game, and they lost that game, too, at the buzzer. So there's still subtle nuances, small things with this team that still need to be fixed. Derrick Rose is lamenting his turnovers and had five or six in that game against Charlotte, including the crucial one down at the end of it where it was one second left, threw it out of bounds, trying to find a, an open man on his drive. Charlotte comes down, hits the... Three-pointer Malik Monk hit it right before the buzzer. Game over. I mean, that's the turnovers have been so harmful to what the Pistons have been trying to do. I think they're about 17 and a half turnovers a game. And most of them are live ball turnovers, meaning that the opponent gets the ball and it's a fast break going the other way. And those are so hard to stop. And so defense just has nothing to do with that. Though the Pistons defense has been absolutely atrocious on A man-to-man basis, their communication has been bad. That's something else that uh, a lot of guys and and Coach Casey have been harping on is it's just communication that will improve a lot of those things. And I asked Casey last week, is it as much miscommunication where guys are saying the wrong thing or with so many new guys, is it in terms of terminology where the code words are different and uh, they might call a blue or a red or something and the other people, the newer guys, don't know what that terminology means or they're slow to react to it. And Casey said, no, it's not miscommunication. It's just no communication. If guys said anything, even if it was the wrong thing, that would be an improvement because it means at least they're talking. And we've seen this in the past where uh, Aaron Baines was one of the better communicators on defense and the other bigs that they've had in recent years have not been that. And so that's something that uh, is going to have to improve if the Pistons are going to pull out of this tailspin that they cannot cannot be the defensive team that they are right now in order to um, get some wins. The other piece about injuries is their point guards have been decimated, their entire point guard group. Reggie Jackson has a stress reaction in his back. 
Derrick Rose missed those five games because of hamstring issues. And again, that's not something that is related to anything else that he's done in the past. That's just a hamstring. And if you don't take care of those properly, those can be lingering issues that last throughout the season. So hamstring is just not something to mess with. And they sat him for those five games to try to get him right and make sure he was ready to go. But even in coming back, there's still that rust. You can see the timing is off. He's not making the floaters that he typically does. And he's starting to shoot the three-pointer a little bit better. So you can see the mix in his game. And when it all fits together, it's going to be nice. But it's still, when does that happen? When does the combination of Blake Griffin and Derrick Rose and Andre Drummond and when Reggie Jackson comes back, when does that all come together and, and look like it's supposed to look? We haven't seen that really in the preseason very much, and we haven't seen it in the regular season either. That domino effect of all of those point cards going down. Tim Frazier was the other one that missed some time with a shoulder injury. So that brought the domino effect of Luke Kennard moving into the starting lineup and Bruce Brown as the complementary piece to that coming into the starting lineup. And Brown has looked pretty good in his outings. Defensively, you want him in that starting lineup because he can guard well on the perimeter. His assist numbers went way up for a bit, but it's still, he's got to be an offensive threat and he's just not there yet. A lot of that work in the summer was focused on getting him comfortable as a ball handler and a point guard, but it is, you've got to be a threat. You've got to be shooting a higher percentage when you're going to the rim and threatening the rim. Otherwise, defense is just going to go under on the pick and roll and not respect what you're trying to do. And that's what's been happening, that even when Brown has tried to get to the rim, he's been met by a couple of big men and just hasn't been able to finish. And that's that's just where the Pistons are. That's their last opportunity and last option when you look at point guards with all three of those Jackson, Rose, and Frazier out, you've got to go to Brown as your next option. Kyrie Thomas now with a foot injury, not even a consideration in there. So really, if you wanted to go Canard, you could go Canard there. But there needs to be some balance that goes with that too. The problem also is that pulling Canard out of that second group now jumbles that lineup where you had some chemistry between Canard and Langston Galloway and Derrick Rose when those three played together. I mean, that's one of the better bench backcourt groups that you have in the league and we've seen out of Galloway he's playing out of his mind right now in that Charlotte game 32 points seven three-pointers and what tells you the amount of faith that they have in him is he was that outlet pass on that Derrick Rose turnover Galloway was standing in the corner that was the guy that Rose was supposed to find that was the what they drew up on the previous play and they run that play three or four times prior to that last possession Drummond found him, I know, on one, and I, I can't remember who had who was the ball handler on the other ones. But Galloway is, is the go-to guy at the end of a game when you have Blake Griffin on the court, when you people question why Luke Kennard wasn't on the court. It's because Galloway was playing so well at that time. And defensively, that was a guy that you wanted just in case there was another possession coming up after that, too. So the injuries have that effect of, of taking the rotation out of whack and uh, Derek Rose started in that Timberwolves game too. You start Rose with Kennard and with Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond. And for whatever reason, I, I don't know. I'm not a coach. I'm not an X and O guy. I'm just an observer. But Luke Kennard just gets lost in the sauce when he's playing with Derek Rose and Blake Griffin because those guys handle the ball so much that he's just not, that's not in his DNA right now to take the ball from them and be a primary scorer in that lineup 
it's just hard to see. It's it's hard to watch when you you see what he does from a thirty point performance in against Indiana earlier in the year to just being almost invisible when he's in that lineup. So as it moves forward, I would see Luke Kennard moving back to that second unit. I can't see him being a starter with Griffin and Reggie Jackson or whoever and being an effective part. I think his his most effective role right now is coming off the bench when he's playing with Rose and not with Griffin, that he gets time, that he gets to shine in complementary pieces with Derrick Rose and not just with Blake Griffin and Drummond. I think he just gets so lost in that mix of other guys handling the ball. And he's the youngest guy in all of that. The The shooting still is there. He's over 40% in three-point shooting, but it just gets lost when he's out there with the rest of those guys. And Kennard's numbers have been impressive. 17.8 points, 4.2 assists, 41% from three. That you can see when he has opportunity, he's going to shine. And he's been one of the better revelations of the first part of the year for the Pistons. It's just getting him more touches. And in that Charlotte game, I think he only had five shots. But again, it's looking at the combinations of of the rotation that he's playing with, and there just isn't going to be very much available there if he's playing with Rose and with Griffin. Rose separately, yes, we've seen enough evidence to suggest that that could work, but with Griffin and Kennard, just, I don't know. I don't know why that does not work. The other piece with Kennard, it's in that starting group. It's harder for him to find his shot. It could be that it's first level, starting level defenders that he's facing, and that's giving him more of a problem. I think it's more of finding some juice in there. With Drummond, it's he's starting to handle the ball a little bit more. And for Kennard, it's harder to get in that unless he's in a pick and roll. And that's not his strong suit right now. I think his strongest suit is as a spot-up shooter, a step-back three that he's added to his game. And just driving to the rim, maybe on a pick and roll, but it just hasn't happened enough that I have a a significant amount of faith in it that that's his strongest suit right now. When you look at the numbers, the offense is working. The Pistons were the best three-point shooting team up to this point at 41%, and they're number five in field goal percentage at 47%. So that suggests everything that Dwayne Casey is doing in terms of offense is working. The Uh, schemes, the plays that he's drawing up, the open looks that he's getting. There was also a stat that the Pistons were the best in wide open threes and making those. And that's something that was such a struggle last year was getting those shots to fall. They would be there, Galloway, Kennard, those guys weren't making them at the same clip that they are now. So from an offensive perspective, that is working. Defensively is where all of the problems are coming from is they're not able to stop anybody. They can't stop point guards. They can't stop drives to the rim. Charlotte had whatever shots they wanted off the dribble between uh, Rogier, Malik Monk, and Devontae Graham. They just got to the rim, and Cody Martin even, whatever they wanted. And that's not an indictment on just Andre Drummond. And for a lot of fans, that's the venom that comes out is that Drummond's a bad rim protector. But if you look at Drummond's numbers, the blocks are there. He's at a career-high 2.0 blocks per game. But it is more of... What happens when Drummond isn't in the game and you go to Christian Wood and you go to Thon Maker, they're certainly not the same accomplished defensive players and rim protectors that Drummond is right now. But the other piece of it is when it's breaking down, and I mentioned the communication earlier, they're not calling what the switches are and what they, what needs to be done. And some of that goes on the centers and it goes on Drummond to a degree too, that if that communication isn't there and uh, the screen is coming, the guard is completely out of the play and he's playing two-on-one, 
And even Drummond in a two-on-one is not going to be able to stop some of the better guards and better center combinations in the league. And that's a little bit of what's happening with those. The other big piece is turnovers. The Pistons were 23rd. They're averaging about 17 and a half turnovers a game. Those are live ball turnovers. And there's just not much you can do. Even when you are communicating, even when you are getting back, it's almost like hockey in an odd man rush. You've just got an advantage there. And when you're finishing at the rim like that, doesn't matter who's back that the, the Pistons and those live ball turnovers are just leading to too many easy points. And Dwayne Casey pointed to 27 points off 21 turnovers against Charlotte. Even when the Pistons had a 14-point advantage, they found a way to let the Hornets back into it. And turnovers are a big part of that. And that's been one of the big themes and big... Casey's word is bugaboo, and that's one of my favorite words too. But that's been one of the, the biggest stings this season is that they, as well as they can play offensively, in making shots, when they have those turnovers on the offensive end and it leads to easy baskets the other way, it takes away your effectiveness on offense. If you were turning those shots into or those turnovers into shots, then you're on to something at that point. But when they have so many of those turnovers, it's just it drains your energy and drains your soul that you can't do a little bit more with what they're doing offensively. And, and that's the problematic. And Galloway, I mentioned 46% from threes in the top 20 in the league right now. Again, the offense is working. The shots are falling. Tony Snell, to a degree, is is helping out with that three-point shooting. But it's mostly on the defensive end that those issues are coming up. And besides the turnovers and the poor defense, that's what gets you at a 4-9 and record. So how do you enjoy this team? I think it goes to expectations and what a reasonable expectation of this team is. Is it a playoff team? Is it? Are you expecting making it to the playoffs and winning a round or two or this team getting to the Eastern Conference Finals? I would say right now, that's not a realistic goal. And if that's what the expectation is, then you're going to be frustrated a lot this year. That's just how this is, is that the the chemistry isn't there, the cohesiveness isn't there, the communication isn't there, that this is a team that's going to run off 10 straight wins right now. And I talked about it in the preview podcast that the first 25 games looked to be the easier part of this schedule, and they're halfway through that 25-game start, and at 4-9, and that's not encouraging at all. I said at some point they needed to be uh, what was it, 17 and 8 or 18 and 7, ideally in that first 25. And injuries, certainly a part of this, but they're not going to get to probably 15 in this 25. Again, the easy part of their schedule, they probably need to be, I would say they, they need to be 10, 12 wins. And that's still having them go, what, 6 and 6 in these next 12. And that's not a given that there, there are some hard games in here. They got Atlanta coming up this week. They got Milwaukee at Milwaukee. That's not going to be an easy one that you can walk in and win. So it's going to be tough in this next 12-game stretch to try to get to 10, 11 wins, maybe. And I think 11 and 14 is still not good enough. And and you start looking forward to the trade deadline and what this could look like at the trade deadline. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But that's, that's what this team is looking at. If you are of the opinion that the Pistons should be tanking, I've already seen the the tank uh, gifts and and the images and the emails and the everything else. And I get the emails. I read some of them. I read the first couple of lines and see where you're trying to go with it. 
And then if it's not interesting and not something new, then I, I don't read them. From a, a Twitter perspective, I laugh at a lot of them because it, it is ingenious. It is a little bit creative with some of the things that people do. But suggesting that they tank right now is just a little bit premature because it's not trading time. It's not trading season. A lot of teams are in that same boat where they don't know where what they are and which direction they're going. So calling up a team right now and trying to trade anybody, I don't think is going to elicit any kind of good reaction. It's just going to be looking at what the opportunities could be. And I think the front office is doing that, at least starting to gauge teams and see which players might be available. If someone had suggested the Knicks as a team that isn't going to be in any kind of contention right now. I thought the Knicks might be a little bit better, but that's, I mean, that's my bad. I, I saw that one completely wrong. If that's a team that you call up and say, hey, Dennis Smith Jr., whom they, they showed some interest in last season before he was traded in that Porzingis deal with the Mavs, that's one you might want to call back on and say, hey, are you still in the same spot with Dennis Smith and is he available? I might even re- reach out and see if you can get Marcus Morris and and people will say I don't know if you can have Marcus and Markeith playing on the same team why not I mean, just call and see what Marcus Morris might be I think he's a, a a critical piece of what the Knicks have been doing so far this season and he brings some of that know-how and spirit that the Pistons need the toughness he's if nothing else Marcus Morris is a smart player and Markeith is is very much the same I don't know enough about the ins and outs of them playing together. But I think it's a call that you make and at least see, because there are probably plenty of buzzards flying over the Knicks carcasses right now to see which pieces they can peck off of that uh, carcass and and which pieces might be available. I don't know if Julius Randle fits here, but you make the call. You see. Try to figure it out a little bit later because you never know what's going to happen anywhere around the trade deadline. I think it's just going to be some time to figure out what this Pistons team is. And again, you can make a little bit of a determination after the 25-game mark. But once you get into December and January, and again, the Pistons' West Coast trip where they go out and play both L.A. teams, which are the two of the hottest teams in the league right now, that's in late December, early January. I think that starts Utah, L.A., L.A. Golden State isn't the monster that it was a little bit before. You can see where you are at that point, and then the calls can be more serious in moving forward with whatever the future of this team is going to be. And again, I think if this team does not make the playoffs or in January is, what, 10 games under 500, let's say, then this whole thing just gets blown up completely, just blown up. And Drummond may decide that he wants to opt out of his contract more power to him and that there's a team that's going to pay him somewhere. I I honestly believe that, that there's a team that's looking at him and say, hey, that's the the final piece of what what they need to be a playoff contending team. And if that's the case, you can try to trade him at the deadline. And if not, then he walks out the door potentially and you get nothing for it at all. I think that's going to put a fire under the Pistons to try to make them more motivated to try to make some kind of deal before the deadline. Again, if they are somewhere around 10 games under 500 and this just isn't working, let's say another injury situation happens and that's the direction that they're going. If you've been following this team, I kind of liken it to the Star Wars movie series, the uh, each of the trilogies. The Bad Boys era was uh, the first three movies, The New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back, and the the glory years of this franchise and of that movie series where it was so exciting. You got introduced to the Isaiah Thomases and the Joe Dumars 
and those guys, Rick Mahorns. But then you also had them battling the Darth Vaders at the time, which is Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And and what made that era interesting. Then you had kind of the going to work in, in 2004, and that was the return of the Jedi, if you will. And then after that, you had this long period of nothing where no more new movies came out. People didn't think about Star Wars the same way. And then those are the days that we just don't talk about. But then you come back with the prequels, those are the times that people still don't talk about. I mean, that's the Jar Jar Binks era of this Pistons franchise where they were missing the playoffs. They were one of the worst teams in the league. And now you get back into episode seven, eight, and nine, where it's interesting, it's watchable, but it's still not as good as what you remembered the early period to be, which was the bad boys and the going to work area. Those are championship era teams where the palace was the place to be and they were playing good defense, good basketball. There were interesting characters in this. And now you're you're into a period where it's, hey, if you make the playoffs, that's good enough. And that's going to be the next step forward for that. But the, the big question is, what's the payoff after all of that? What is What are you doing as a franchise to move this thing forward? And it may just be where this is the end of the Star Wars series. This might be the end of this version of the Pistons. If you get to the end of January and you're not in playoff position, I think you have to move a lot of these pieces and try to get as many assets as you can start to build this thing all over again. And they've done about as much as they can do with trying to assemble veteran talent around this. And it's just going to be very tough to look at the this construction of this roster and say there are complementary pieces that you can add to it on the salary cap that they're working with now to try to figure this whole thing out. Because again, this is the time that this front office was looking forward to that if Drummond decides, even if it's not this summer coming, but the following summer that he's still around, you're dropping a lot of big numbers off of the salary cap. Reggie Jackson's 18 million, Langston Galloway's 7 million, the Josh Smith's 5.3 finally is off of the books that some of these other ones are starting to just fall off and you have some maneuverability to go out and get some more free agents. They have a lot of player options that they would be dealing with team options on guys. So they can clear, I want to say, what was it, seven players off of this roster by the time the the end of the season rolls around with options and contracts expiring and everything else. And they may just decide they want to move those at the deadline too. But I think it will be a completely different team because the window for Blake Griffin is two more years. It's next year and the following year. And the following year is a, I want to say, $40 million player option for Griffin. And I've said it before. I don't know how you turn down $30 million or $40 million. In Blake's case, I think he's he's chilling. He's, he's good with $40 million as that player option because that might not be something that he can go somewhere else and get. But again, I think you're always continually gauging the market on any of your players to see what the future could hold and if there's a deal that might be in your interest, either at the deadline or sometime in the summer, that there could be a team that, like a Portland, if, if you're Portland and you have some young pieces and draft picks and you think Blake Griffin is the missing piece for you, I, I mean, I think that makes all the sense in the world. And we'll see where the, the Blazers are when we come around toward the end of the year. But that's the team that I would watch along with Blake Griffin to say, hey, this is something that really, really seems to make sense. Boston might be the same sort of way if they get down toward uh, the deadline and they figure out, hey, we, we're in first or second place in the East. And that's the one piece that we need. 
go after it because they've got a war chest of draft picks and assets and young guys, and they're paying a lot of their young guys right now, the Marcus Smarts and the Jalen Browns. They're starting to dole out some of that money. Do they have enough space to bring in a Blake Griffin? You, you never know unless you call and ask, and, and maybe they come calling the Pistons and try to figure out what they want to do with some of that stuff. Next piece is uh, Drummond, and, and I mentioned Drummond a little bit earlier, and um, whether he's impacting winning, and you look at the numbers by themselves, 19.6 points, 17 rebounds, three assists, two blocks. Those are all career-high numbers for him. And if, if you thought he was an outstanding rebounder, he's doing even better than that at, at 17 points a game. The 19.6 is out of necessity in terms of points because Griffin had been out and they didn't have a lot of offensive options. And now Drummond has added that face-up game to his arsenal, and he's been very effective at facing up, putting the ball on the court, going to the rim, and finishing at the rim. And as I'm saying that, I know there are a bunch of people who are grimacing and and laughing because of Drummond maybe being a little soft when he's trying to lay the ball up and, and trying to be maybe a small forward in the way that he's getting to the rim. But the lob isn't there. The pick and roll isn't there. His pick and roll partner, Reggie Jackson, hasn't been around for most of the season so Drummond has to reinvent himself and be something different. And on one hand, you look at it and say maybe he's marketing himself to other teams that might be looking at him at the trade deadline or maybe at the in the summertime. If he's going to opt out, then he's showing he's showing his plumage, if you will, as a like a peacock for teams to look at and to say, hey, that's the piece that we need. The problem with that is that. You've got to find a team that needs a center, that needs what he does. And in terms of rebounding, he is the best rebounder in the league and has been the best rebounder in the league. How do you how do you compensate that though when you're just a, when you're more a rebounder than anything else, and you can be a scorer, but you're not a three point threat. So you're not in the same vein as an Embiid, as a Jokic, as an Anthony Davis. And I asked Drummond about some of those things on a road trip. And here's what he said. Here's here's the response. The knock on you has always been about your motivation and drive. What's different this year with not just playing well, but going 2020 over these last few games? Uh, it's a sense of urgency. You know, uh, a lot of years in the league, so I think I know what it takes to win in this league and what it takes to lead a team. Um, I think overall it's just me maturing as a player. I wouldn't even call it just, you know, everybody's saying it's like contract trade. <laughs> and I wouldn't even call it that. It's more just the maturity aspect of the game and how I carry myself and how I conduct myself on and off the court. Thank you. Um, I think with that, I think it just shows. It just shows that the work I've put in over these past seven years of, you know, being here and seeing the ins and outs and seeing the people I've played with. And, you know, I think now is a time in my career where I, can lead a team and know how to do it the you know right and proper way. Is that something that not necessarily part of the contract discussion, but it's part of the making yourself just a better player. And if you do this stuff, then the contract stuff will work itself out and wherever you end up. Yeah, I mean it is what it is at the end of the day I can't control what you know the front office wanna do in terms of the extension and contract stuff. The only thing I can control right now is just playing the game the right way and putting my team in a good position to win and you know, whatever happens after that happens. I mean, obviously, I would enjoy playing the rest of my career in Detroit. But, um, you know, whatever happens, 
at the end of the year happens, we'll figure it out when that time comes. When you look at the other centers in the league, and it's, I mean, maybe Jokic, maybe Embiid, um, Davis, some of the, the great guys, and they have that inside-outside piece. How eager are you to add the outside jump shot to your game and, and it's just a different element? I mean, I think it's already been added. I just don't have to take it. I can score 20 points and get 20 rebounds just based off layups and being in the right place, place at the right time. I think guys that shoot you guys that shoot that many threes, you know, they need that to, like, you know, get themselves going. And, you know, it's an open shot they'll take. I mean, it is what it is. But for me, my main goal is to get the easiest shot possible. And obviously, I took, I've been taking a couple, you know, every game, too. So it's not like I'm not shooting them. It's just taking them in rhythm and getting them in the right spots. With uh, Blake out, it does open some more opportunity for you to have greater freedom. Blake and Reggie out. So to have some greater freedom in the offense. That face-up game, was that something you had to sell to Casey to be able to do, or did he just say you No, know, I mean, he's, he's, he's seen me do it, you know, in spurts throughout my career, and he's like, you know, hey, I would like to implement, you know, the face-up game into your into your game because you're a lot faster than a lot of the bigs, and that's a lot. That's, like, what I've really worked on this past summer, too, is just learning my spots, learning the gaps, knowing when to attack, and, you know, what kind of moves I need to make to get myself in a good position to score or, you know, find my open teammate out on the wing. So I think that's one of the biggest things they've drilled into me since Coach Casey's got here is to really work on that part of my game. And, you know, the ball handling aspect is always having the ball in my hand, making sure nobody's able to take the ball from me, the decision-making with the passing. I think he's just given me a lot to work with. To, I mean, that's just a lot of trust and a lot of faith, too, for a coach to give a player like myself that much freedom to make these decisions on the court. Did you see the, the podcast? Uh, KD was with uh, Quentin Richardson and said he really appreciated your game or respected your game because people don't know how strong you are. And when you get to rebound and you can be one of the best in the league, what do you think about when, when somebody around the league praises you that way and gives you that many props? I mean, I think he's definitely the best ever when it comes to rebounding. I don't think there's anybody that's even remotely close to the things I've done when it comes to that. I think, you know, it's really cool to hear a guy like Kevin Durant, you know, who's loved and valued in this NBA to appreciate a game that, you know, I take seriously, you know, on the offensive and defensive rebound. And that's just my knack. And it's cool to hear that, you know, he appreciates that, that I, I put that much effort and work into it. You think that you feel like you're underappreciated around the league? So, you know, I really don't even care about none of that shit, to be honest. You know, at the end of the day, it's another man's opinion on what they feel about me. So, as long as my teammates and my staff feel like I can get the job done, whatever the media or whatever anybody else has to say, it doesn't really matter to me. And, of course, the reference that I made in there was to Kevin Durant. And Durant was on a, a Knuckleheads podcast with Darius Miles and Quentin Richardson. And Durant said that he respected one of his favorite under-the-radar players to watch was Andre Drummond because of what he does on the rebounding end and how strong he is. He's deceptively strong. And at 6'10", 6'11", and about 280 pounds, he is strong. I mean, that's he can do so much more. There is so much more of Drummond's game that's there. But when you read those numbers, the, the points, rebounds, assists, and blocks, then you also look at the turnovers at four per game and the fouls at 4.2 per game. Those are also career highs. So it's not without some detracting that you say that Drummond is having the best season of his year, but the turnovers have been bad. It's him handling the ball and maybe going into a double team unnecessarily. 
But that's where they are because they don't have other ball handlers and they've got to figure out different ways for him to uh, be effective on the court. I like it because I think it keeps him engaged. And an engaged Andre Drummond is the best Andre Drummond on the offensive end because he's not just sulking and roaming around the court. And again, that's been one of the bigger knocks on him is that he hasn't been driven and motivated to be the best player that he can be. And I think he's shown some of that this year. But I've always said about Drummond, if you, in an 82-game schedule, if you can get him playing at his peak and at his most engaged, if you do that for 65 games, then you've got you've squeezed the most out of Drummond that you can do. I don't know anybody that plays at 100% level, maybe Russ or maybe James Harden, plays at 100% level for 80 games or 75 games. Drummond, if you can get him in the mid-60s with that, I think you're doing fine. And, and he's shown... For the most part, when he stayed out of foul trouble, and that's been the biggest issue for him this year, is staying out of foul trouble. When you do that, he can be an all-star level performer, and he's made his game more efficient by cutting out those three-pointers. Most of the ones that he shot this year have been um, at the buzzer or or when he's been wide open, and I think he's done significantly better with that. Now the the question is going to be, can he get even more efficient and when he's driving to the rim, find that guy in the corner for that open shot and get those assist numbers up. That's going to be the the next piece of that. So some of the talk was about opting out. I think that's still a real concern. I think that's legitimate that there is a team because of the rest of the free agent market looking very mediocre, that Drummond could be a guy that a team takes a chance on and says that, hey, whether it's because of injury, out of necessity, or whatever the case is, a team looks at Drummond and says um, that's going to be the the next thing that they can add and really improve their roster. Again, the question is, does he impact winning, and at what cost is that going to be? Is a team going to pay $30, 35000000 million for him uh, to come and join their team? And that's, for what it's worth, he did say in that clip, too, that he enjoyed playing in Detroit, and he would want to play the rest of his career in Detroit, and I think that's significant. There, there isn't that the fact that there's some unhappiness here. It's just going to be a question of whether Tom Gorris is going to cut the check and get Andre Drummond back in at four years, five years, and whatever that number looks like, 180, 160, who knows? And and that's going to be the discussion between the Drummond's agents and Gorris and I have no indication of which direction that's going to go, so I'm not going to pretend like I do, but, I mean, that kind of is what it is. Next piece I want to get into is my top five NBA cities, and this is something that I've teased on Twitter before, and I've always talked about what my number one is. If you follow me on Twitter or you, you've been around for a couple of years, you know, unquestionably, number my number one is Toronto. It is absolutely the best city on the beat. It's and The comparison I make is that it's New York, but it's cleaner with nicer people. Canadians are just the best. They are absolutely awesome people. The city is nice. It's big. It's clean. It's fun. If you go in the summer, uh, which I've done outside of the NBA season, taking my family there, you have an absolute good time. And the exchange rate is somewhere around 75, 80%. So you get a nice chunk of change on your dollar too, when you go over there. But if you go take the train, Drive over to Windsor, go to the train station, take the train. I want to say it's 50 bucks, 100 bucks round trip maybe to go to Toronto. It is an absolute enjoyable time. Spend a couple of days there. If you get a chance, stay at the Delta Hotels. Shameless plug. Um, you get one of the best views of the lake and everything. It is Toronto is a number one. Had a chance to walk around 
in the downtown area in, in Chinatown. It's magnificent in just the downtown area, the restaurants, the food and everything, the people. It's one of my favorite trips, unquestionably, is, is going to Toronto. My number two is Miami. And you can guess why. Just time on South Beach. We Obviously, the Pistons went there last week and spent a couple of days there. I had some plane trouble, so I, I didn't get in on time. But the days that we did spend there, it was a back-to-back. So they had an off day on Wednesday, and then they practiced there on Thursday before flying out to Charlotte. So you give me three days in Miami, I tell you Miami is absolutely worth it. The weather was 85, sunny and nice, and it, it sounds like I'm being a hater and rubbing it into people who were in Detroit. No, not so much, but it was um, it was just a fun time. And there's a, a Wynwood area not too far from downtown that is an arts district, kind of hipsterish. But they have these murals on the side of buildings, and it's not just one building, it's a mural park almost, where you can walk through and see some fascinating photos and, and fascinating artwork um, that's just, it captures your imagination and it's a nice bustling area of town. But that's completely different than South Beach. Uh, if you go to Miami, go to Cheeseburger Baby. It is on Washington Ave and I think 15th. And it is a, a wonderful, wonderful cheeseburger. They have turkey burgers as well if you're into that thing. But just walking around South Beach, the, it seems like anytime we go to Miami, it's just the right time of the year where you get to dig in your, your drawer and bring out the shorts and the T-shirt and everything else. Um, but you get your feet in the water, you feel completely renewed and completely better from the wintertime in Detroit. And it snowed last Monday, and that was some of the travel delay that I had. But once I got to Miami, completely happy with 85 degrees and, and sun. Number three on my list is Portland. And a lot of people will say, Portland, how the heck does that end up in the top five? Portland is a just laid back and chill area where it's never too hot, but it's just a nice, you get a nice fall jacket and put it on and you can walk around downtown Portland and have a ball and enjoy yourself. One of the better meals on the NBA circuit is at a, a seafood restaurant. I can't tell you what the name of it is. I don't even know. But they have the best Brussels sprouts. And how random, talking about Brussels sprouts. The best Brussels sprouts that I have ever tasted. They are roasted. They're crispy. They are flavored right. And I want to say it's with some balsamic that they throw on there. Those things are right. It is worth the trip. And I will find out the name of that seafood restaurant. But... That is one of the must-do trips for um, that trip to Portland. And, and James Edwards from The Athletic and I and, and Vincent Ellis from The Free Press, we put that on the list as one place that we must go when we go to Portland. That restaurant, unnamed seafood restaurant, and also the Voodoo Donuts, after the game, it's 1 or 2 a.m., the line is out the door for Voodoo Donuts. And if you've never been to Voodoo Donuts, it has um, you don't just go and get a glazed donut. You get a glazed donut with... Cocoa Puffs on the top or with Cap'n Crunch cereal on the top and a pint of milk and you enjoy your midnight snack. It is the bomb. It is, it is again, one of the, the best reasons to go to Portland. And it's just the people there the same are, are very, very nice. It's a very good area when you walk around downtown and there's just stuff to do. It's not just the coffee and not just the whatever. You're not going to Portland for the weather. You're going just to relax and hang out and you take a breath in of that northwest air and oxygen it just feels completely different portland is is number three on that list number four i will say the combination of brooklyn 
and Manhattan, so the Nets or the Knicks. And people will say that's cheating because you're putting two big, nice areas together. But Brooklyn just puts me in a certain vibe of I need to listen to hip-hop music when I go to New York. It's something about the rhythm of being on the subway or being on the train and just listening to hip-hop. It puts you right there and, and... subliminally. I don't know why. I'm listening to Nas or I'm listening to Tribe Called Quest. Anytime I go to New York, it just has that feel and puts me in that mood of of wanting to listen to either of those. Obviously, Manhattan has all of the entertainment districts, the theaters, the shows, and everything else, but it is good people watching and walking around, and then the food. You can stop on any corner and find a good restaurant and something to do in New York, and city that never sleeps. It's you can stay up until three, four in the morning and and get down to whatever spot you want to. I recommend Red Rooster. If you catch Red Rooster on the, the right night in Harlem, you have yourself a, a good time already plugged into what you're doing. And number five, a lot of these are destination type places, and this one is weather-based. I'm gonna say Orlando, and I like Orlando because of mainly the hotel that I typically stay at is called the Castle. And it's on the International Drive area, so it's not downtown. But in that International Drive, you have five, six, ten restaurants that you can get to. There's a nice Cuban restaurant uh, that's there that I like, too. Uh, BB King's is a must-stop place there. That the, the house band is magnificent every single time that I go. But you go to the castle, you can walk down to... Um, any number of of restaurants and bars and anything else that you want to do. And that's very walkable. If you stay downtown, it's the same idea. There's enough stuff to do there. But what is this? Two, we'll say three. Well, two of the the places in this top five are weather-based because it's Orlando and Miami, obviously. And you would say, well, why isn't LA in that same mix? I'm just not an LA guy. LA hasn't stuck to me the same way. I don't get the same vibe out in LA. I'll take the weather, but again, but in, in, L.A. honorable mention, because if you do, you can stay at L.A. Live and L.A. Live has all of the fun, all of the concerts, all of the everything uh, packed into that as well. And I mentioned on the previous podcast about the concert with Most Def and Talib Kweli uh, that was in L.A. So L.A.'s in that next five, probably. But it just doesn't hit me the same way that New York and Miami and some of the other places do. So that those are my top five. NBA cities. And I'll give a shout out to Salt Lake City, too. It's completely underrated from a and I haven't done skiing yet in Salt Lake City, but that is on the list of things to do. Shout out to Tony Jones from The Athletic for being the absolute best tour guide to uh, show us around Salt Lake City. And I I, again, I thought Salt Lake City was just going to be a bust and no fun at all. But he's shown us some good places to get out and hoop. And to enjoy some of the other scenery. If you go to Salt Lake City too, had a good trip with Vince Ellis and we went to Park City and hung out for part of the day. So add that to your list of things. If you've got some other spots for me to check out in Toronto, Miami, Portland, Brooklyn or or Manhattan or even Orlando, you can shoot those to me via Twitter. And as always, my DMs are open. If you have some suggestions there, shoot those to me, certainly. Moving on to music. Everybody knows I'm a, a hip-hop guy, and I like hip-hop music, but my musical taste is very much varied into other things. My absolute favorite artist, period, is Prince, and I, I will 
listen to anything Prince except that those times when he was trying to get out of the Warner Brothers contract and he was just putting out albums just to be putting out albums that I'm an early Prince guy and Diamonds and Pearls is is one of my favorites but by far my favorite Prince album is 1999 I can listen to 1999 when I'm working when I'm trying to go to sleep when I'm in a on a plane anytime 1999 might be one of my favorite albums of any genre of any anything because Prince is my favorite artist but I just absolutely love 1999 and, and I can go into a whole separate podcast of just Prince stuff the thing about Prince is he has so much unreleased material and I've got a couple of imports and I've heard some other things that he've done that he's done that have not been released and that's the mystique to Prince. This is turning into a Prince podcast. Anyway, Prince is, is, is the dude. That's just the dude. And I can't say that if any other artist passed away that it would hit me hard. But when Prince passed away a couple of years ago, that really did hit me hard. And I was lucky enough to get to a concert and to catch him in Detroit at the Fox before he passed away. And that Atlanta concert was his last one. And I was actually planning on trying to get down to that Atlanta concert, not knowing it would be his last one, but just wanting to catch him, knowing that his health was was not so good. Next album, Sharday, And I grew up on Sharday, And Promise is the one that I will point to as my favorite. Stronger Than Pride is, a, is another one that's right up there for me. But Promise is, again... If I'm trying to write something, if I'm working, if I'm trying to sleep on a plane, I can listen to Promise any time of day. Is It a Crime starts that off and just, it is a, it's just smooth. It's smooth stuff that, that will catch you in any mood. Now, probably my second favorite artist of any genre is Miles Davis. And if you're going to say Miles Davis, you're going to say Kind of Blue. Obviously, same idea. That might be the best album that I own because of the vibe and the mood that it puts you in. And I like jazz from that era, from the 50s and 60s, because it's saying something without saying something. It doesn't have the lyrics to go with it, but you can just imagine the mood and what they're trying to convey in that music. And Miles does that exceptionally. And I think my favorite Miles albums are, besides Kind of Blue, uh, Sketches of Spain is is... Same deal. It just, you go somewhere different. It puts you in a specific place. And I think that's the sign of a good album is it puts you in a specific time and place of either your life or the first time that you heard it. Or if you were in college when you got into jazz like I did, it puts me back in my dorm room when I listen to Kind of Blue almost every time. And so that's why it makes this list for me. My fourth one is Low End Theory by Tribe Called Quest. And I go back and forth about whether it's Low End Theory or Midnight Marauders. Those are my favorite two tribe uh, albums. But Low End Theory has jazz. And We Got the Jazz is probably just the, the production on that album makes that one of my favorites. And it takes it over the top because it doesn't have that, that pop, let's say, piece that award tour and some of the other ones, but it's still part of Tribe's evolution. But I like going right before that. And again, good music puts you in a time and space. Low End Theory puts me at freshman, sophomore year in college, in the dorm. That fusion with jazz, people hadn't heard that at the time. It was very, it was a very hip hop time, and or 
and it was a very gangster rap time. So for Tribe to come out with Low End Theory went against the grain so much, but it was so sonically sound, so sonically um, moving of what you got with, and that was Tribe's best work to me. Just Q-Tip, Fife, everybody just came together and the lyrics are still ones that you can classically quote today. So that's that's Tribe for me. And then my last album, I'm going to say is What's Going On. And the same same thing for me with socially conscious stuff will get me a little bit more than the popular stuff will. And people talk about what's going on for the title cut, but there's so much more on that album and you just got to listen to it and you just got to feel it. And if you get it and how much of a war protest that was at the time and just going against the grain of what pop music was, that Marvin Gaye was, is just one of the true masters. And that's the way I look at music is that they're true masters and people talk about master classes now, but Stevie Wonder, master. Marvin Gaye, master. Prince, Michael Jackson. There, there aren't very many people who have mastered the craft of music and song the way that those guys have. So, I mean, what's going on? Just take a sit down and listen to it. And there are other ones, and I'm not going to go into the 6 through 10 right now, but there are so many other ones that are just right on that fringe. But regardless of genre, those are probably my best five albums um, or my favorite five albums. And you can parse the best five and your favorite five. Everybody's going to have their favorite five. And I try to go to favorite instead of best because you get into these arguments. And with music, it's so hard to argue about what's good, what's better, what's best. Your favorite, what you like, what hits you in a certain spot. Something might have been your song with your spouse. And that is your song. I'm not going to say that something is better than something else, but it's a favorite for you. And I respect that. I, I just leave that the way that it is. Moving to our DFS update, Andre Drummond was the bell of the ball to start the season with those four 2020 games. And his salary on DraftKings went accordingly. It, it shot up to somewhere around 10000 11000 per night on that. And so you have to look at that and say, is it worth it on a day-to-day -day basis? And again, I read you those averages that he's just under 20 points a game, 17 rebounds, three assists, two blocks, add a couple of steals in there too uh, every game. And he's going to get you somewhere in the mid-40s to 50s on any given night in terms of fantasy points. And I think that's a reasonable enough gamble unless you've got a better option at center. And again, there's it, it's just a matter of choice and a matter of taste of who people are going to want to pick up for their rosters. But I think that's something to consider is, is Drummond is still on a night to night basis until that number gets up around 12 or 13,000. And in that same range with your Giannis's and your Harden's that Drummond is still going to be a feasible option for you to consider. At least at this stretch of the season, Luke Kennard is still going to be a guy that you look at unless his, his salary starts to go up significantly more. You want to watch also how he fits in, as I mentioned earlier, with Derrick Rose and Blake Griffin and whether his numbers start to go down. And he was just under 18 points a game in terms of scoring and the assists are there. But if he moves back into the second group, then I think those numbers can remain a little bit static and you can see what that's going to that value is going to be for him on a night to night basis. Christian Wood was somebody I was very high on at the beginning of the season. The playing time hasn't been there for him, and he's been splitting time with 
fine maker since Blake Griffin has been back. And I just don't know if he's going to play enough minutes to be worth your while to give you 15 points a game. When he's played and he's played consistently, consistent minutes, he's been somewhere near a double-double. But it's just been a struggle for him to to get those minutes, to carve out those minutes, and to be effective. And I think as the season goes on, it's going to remain uh, something that's in flux. But just keep an eye on Christian Wood and where he goes moving forward. And again, right now, Langston Galloway is playing some of the best ball of his career. I mentioned the 32 points the other night against Charlotte and the seven three-pointers. He's locked in, and he's not only doing it from an assist perspective and a scoring perspective. I think he's going to earn more minutes for himself. And I think maybe he fits better in that starting lineup that he makes fewer mistakes, he's a better defensive player, and he's not tall, he's not going to wow you with what he does, but those three-pointers, and you get bonus points for that, every little bit helps. And if he's going to average about 15 points a game, sure, why not? That's a guy that you look at in fantasy and say that he can be a good contributor for you and maybe at a lower cost than some of the other guys. That's all we got for this episode three of the Rod and Reel podcast. Again, apologies for the delay in getting this out to you. But I want to thank everybody again for the support that you've shown. And people have sent emails and messages on Twitter and everything else and um, saying that this is something that's been uh, long needed and they, they've been looking forward to. And I hope that you enjoy episode three. We'll be back hopefully in the next week or so. I'm going to take a couple of these road trips off, these shorter road trips off, and I'll have more time to sit down and knock out another podcast. So stay tuned for episode four. Tell a friend, make sure that you subscribe. And as always, check out all the coverage on DetroitNews.com. We will see you next time. Peace.